Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sober and Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Better Late Than Never, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Better Never Than Late, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hello, everyone. I'd like to apologize personally for the delay. I can assure you that it is entirely my fault. Nonetheless, we can blame Walker because he's fundamentally responsible even for things that are my fault. Got wide shoulders. Stack it up. Normally, we record on Mondays, release on Tuesdays. In Extremis, we record on Tuesdays, release on Tuesdays. And in ultra, mega, ultra extremists, we record later than that and we release later than that. So for any of you counting on this, I know that one of our dear listeners counts on this specifically for his Tuesday commute. For this, I apologize. For everyone else, in the very sympathetic words of Mike Walker not a few moments ago, you can go suck an egg. So we've decided by virtue of our delay to mix things up a bit and change our usual format. So this week we're going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about things we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is going to be Food Chain Magnate. And our topic this week is going to be board game storage, or as I like to subtitle it, Let's all go to Ikea. Yes, that. I was going to say the Sisyphusian task of being a board game collector. Uh, but uh, going to Ikea, I suppose, is very much like one of the labors of Sisyphus. So with that in mind, let's talk about the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Last week, I played Load, another Kickstarter extravaganza based off of League of Legends and or they say they copied it off of Rum and Bones. I wish the rulebook was copied off of Rum and Bones, then it would actually be readable. But long story short, it was actually a really good game. And I'm looking forward to playing it again. Like, the variety in the characters was good. The flow of the game was good. What you're doing is you're picking five characters, you know, from bruisers to assassins to magic users. And there's three lanes. The mobs, you know, move down automatically. And you can get armored ones or you can get fast-moving ones or skirmishers. And you're allowed to use some of your gold either to buy fancy mobs or fancy weapons. And all in all, I'm looking forward to playing it again. I really enjoy Load. There was a fair amount of controversy when it was first launched because the creators were playing fast and loose about who they were. There was some association with a with a monumentally catastrophic Kickstarter of Alien vs. Predator, which to my, the, to my best understanding, even after all these years, there are still people left in the lurch that don't have their stuff, even after it hit retail several years ago. And they plagiarized bits of a rulebook from Roman Bones. It was a huge mess. But since then... Archon Studio has just been quietly and regularly releasing very reasonable quality uh, games with beautiful components on schedule and under budget. And Load was uh, sort of a surprise uh, appreciation for me. I like MOBA games. I like all of I like all the ones that I've tried. Guards of Atlantis is by far the best, but the, but you know, Rum and Bones is fun, and Load is fun. It's not the deepest thing in the world, but oh man, the minis are so good looking and the amount of value that you get out of it. Now it's it's gone through uh, two Kickstarters, so there's a huge cast of characters. I'm a big fan of Load. I'm glad you liked it too. What did you play this week? So, <clears throat> funny story. We were supposed to have a different feature game this week. It wasn't always going to be Food Chain Magnate. It was originally going to be The Seventh Continent because I got a copy in through a trade and I was looking forward to putting it through its paces. It had very, very good reviews and a lot of good buzz, and we're kind of in between the waves of Kickstarter launch. So we played it. We put in about, I think, seven hours-ish, 
And uh, we haven't finished a game. And we were going to be playing it more so that we could finish a game or be in a better position to talk about it with some degree of critical authority. And just looking at it on my dining room table filled me with dread. I'm like, ugh, got to do this thing because I'm a journalist, because I'm a responsible podcaster. Must have integrity. I have to have editorial authority. And then I realized, you know, I was, I was in a terrible mood the day that you were supposed to come over and play this. And I'm like, no, screw this. We don't have to do this, no. So, I mean, look, here's why. The, the Seventh Continent is very much like Time Stories. It's very much like Unlock. It's very much like all those games. It does clever things with cards to cycle in through a system. And indeed, there's a fair number of things about Seventh Continent that's very clever. And I, I could go into more detail, but I'm not going to because I'm not even really reviewing it now. But just the sheer amount of time you spend wrestling with cards, and if you make a tiny mistake the scenario is going to walk out and become unwinnable. And then you don't know whether you're in a dead end because you're in a dead end and you miss something, or you don't know whether you're in a dead end because the game system has produced a lock. And when you're, you know, seven hours into a scenario, that's not cool. You know? So in, in many ways for me, the seventh continent is the sort of apex of the system. And it's a demonstration that I don't want that kind of system. And so <laughs> we may return to the seventh continent at some point, possibly another scenario, but just suffice to say that if you've played Time Stories or Unlock or anything like that, and you've been like, eh, kind of clever, but they're, you know, this kind of system doesn't really appeal to me. Seventh Continent is more of the same. Better in some ways, more refined, but in some ways more sprawling, more prone to error, more more, more laid out. So, uh, ugh, yeah, and it might also be a better solo, I don't know, because one of the things that I found obnoxious, minor note, was the amount of time you spend with two players just managing your hand size. You're constantly getting new cards, but you're constantly at your full hand size. So you're always looking at these four cards saying, which of these three do I want to keep? Which of these three do I want to keep? And I don't find that enjoyable. So I'm a much happier person now that I've released myself free of the shackles of the Seven Continent, which thematically is very appropriate, but in a real world context is not a good sign. Which is bad because I have one, you know, the, the second Kickstarter is on its way. So I felt bad that, you know, we, we played it without, you know, playing my copy. And I'm now not really looking forward to getting my copy. But as a segue into another game we're going to be talking about, I really feel as though Seventh Continent is a game I would enjoy just sitting down like for an afternoon and playing. Unlike this next game we're going to talk about, which is Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea. When we got into the second turn of it, I thought to myself, well, maybe this is one of these games where I'll really enjoy getting a bunch of people together and just playing it for the afternoon. But by the end... I don't want to say too much about it because we only play it once, but I really don't feel as though I'm going to play it again. So why didn't you like the game, Walker? There's a lot going on in, in Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, and there's really not much... It's actually Air, Land, and Sea. Air, Land, and Sea, sorry. Yeah, and there's, yeah. there's not much new stuff. Guess what? You have orcs that are orky and elves that are in trees and all of the same stuff over again. Exactly. And it's got an interesting, you know, uh, activation system, right? Where you can follow your actions. You have one side where if someone takes that action, you can use one of your workers and you can follow it. And you have the other side of your tree where if you take that action, then you can follow it or take another action. All of that is interesting. All of the abilities are interesting, but there's so much going on and so much doesn't matter, right? It's like, oh, I've, you know, outflanked someone, but no, I'm, you know, they play all these cards and you're, and much like some continent where you're cycling the cards, you're cycling these spell cards because they just don't matter. And yeah, I just didn't enjoy it. I'd actually disagree with the spell cards. My problem with the spell cards is that they mattered too much. Well, I mean, some of them did. Yes. Key ones did. Absolutely. The majority of them was like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah. Keep going because I know there's good ones in there. So... Some of them are massive. In, in some ways, and I hate to keep bringing this up every episode because I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but in some of, some ways, the failings reminded me a little bit of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition because Twilight Imperium 4th Edition is built around very, very hard bottlenecks that you work very laboriously to overcome. And sometimes that leads to good tension and sometimes that leads to bad tension. Heroes of Airland and Sea kind of works the same way. And sometimes the spells or the special action spaces or the discovery tokens or what have you just blow the doors wide open. There was one in particular that you objected to a great deal, and I objected to it as well. Normally, building buildings is very laborious, and you can only do it once per round, and you only build one specific thing. But there's a spell that you can cast and just say... Do a whole bunch of build actions. Do two build actions right away, which effectively means you get to do three that round instead of everyone else doing one. 
And it just is not particularly in line with a lot of the other effects and a lot of what what the game is do, uh, doing. And you're right, there's a lot going on. There's this sea of special powers that you have, many of which seem very inconsequential, many of which are very difficult to keep track of because in a given column on a certain building, you might have one power that relates to production and one power that relates to resource generation and one power that relates to combat, and they're all strewn about in text just seemed like a, a relatively arbitrary experience. And when it wasn't arbitrary, it was relatively pedestrian. It's the same old story of I go and try to bash you upside the head. We fight. We attrit each other. Someone else can swoop in if they want. Don't yeah. even say fight. Oh, my God. The combat system. Like, painful. Like, just painful. Like, it has these combat cards. And like I say, it's like, oh, I've, I've you know, worked it so I can attack as one guy. But no, he plays a card and he can summon his entire continent to this one area. And, oh. Very frustrating game. Anyway, moving on. Is that all that you'd like to say about Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, Mark? It's Air, Land, and Sea, Walker. And I point it out merely because one of our listeners will, if, if, if I don't. I, so it's by Scott Alms of uh, Gamblin' Games. It was, it was put out this year. Uh, Scott Alms is the same guy who's done the Tiny Epic Games. And generally speaking, my experience with his designs is that they have neither been tiny nor epic nor particularly satisfying in any way. Now, I haven't tried Tiny Epic Galaxies, which both you and someone else in our local circle, swears up and down is a decent game. And maybe someday I'll give it a try. But all his other stuff I've just found not particularly cohesive, not particularly coherent, a little underbaked, needing more development work. And so I've got to say that the track record for this guy has not really been inspiring confidence in me. So I agree with your thoughts. We could go into more detail, but there's really no point. All in all, it's just when it's not inconsequential, it's it's just weird and not in a particularly good way. And I, I wanted I wanted there to be something to latch onto because, as you say, the activation system is cool. And I like good activation systems. I, I suppose the last thing I'll point out, though, is just merely that, again, it's a game about very, very strict bottlenecks and resource bootstrapping, very much a lot of ways that real-time strategy games are supposed to be. And it's kind of sort of got that inspiration. And a lot of this is tied to how many workers you have, which is why it was doubly frustrating for a couple of the players to just get these random events that says, hey, get more workers. And they did this in the early turn. So I was like, great. We were drowning in workers and we had done more than anybody else did. And uh, it was nothing nothing that we did. Meanwhile, you wandered into a territory that basically said, oh, no, lose a turn. Yeah, it's like, oh, your guy that you just built died. And that took an action. And you only effectively not sometimes, you know, if you have the right number of workers, you'll get more actions. But you only have two of your own activations. And if something kills something you used, that's like that's half of your actions gone down the drain because of a random token unsatisfying not particularly good what else do you play walker i have john company we both played second time for me still loving it still looking forward to playing the next time i like it once again many different ways to play it you can become you know the guild master that controls the boats or controls the goods or you know secretly trying to tank the company or embezzle money from the company or or oh everyone's trying to embezzle money from the it's company. true and uh or you know make the company make tons of money so you can do double payouts or control whether or not the the double payouts are going to happen lots to do and much like another game we're going to talk about later the flow is real it's one of these games where once you see the first turn go through it all makes sense like there's tons of front end information but as soon as the one turn's done it all makes sense and is a great game to play yes i'm continuing to enjoy john company as well very much looking forward to cool world's next game root which should be coming out in a couple months time we also tried Shards of Infinity, which I'm doing my level best to pronounce properly because for some reason, I don't know why, it has become stuck in my head as Shards of Infinity. This is by uh, Gary Arant and Justin Gary of Stoneblade. And for anyone curious about what Shards of Infinity is, it is the next Realms game. There were Star Realms, there's Hero Realms, there's Cthulhu Realms, uh, you know, all these Ascension ripoffs, and I mean this half complementarily, that are incredibly stripped down, very fast moving deck builders with a, a, a queue of cards to buy and two different resources, combat and actual money. It doesn't introduce anything particularly earth-shattering into the formula, aside from Mercenaries. Mercenaries is a cool little thing where you can buy a card, trigger it once immediately, and then the card goes out of the game. Instead of every other deck builder, and indeed how you work with all the other cards in the game, which is you buy it and enters your discard pile, it's going to show up later, but you get to use it over and over. And I thought that was really neat, and sometimes it actually manifests itself in very interesting trade-offs. You know, I've got the money, and this is, this is something that I want to do now, but I don't necessarily want it clocking up my deck. We played it four players, and I my experience with all the Realms game and Shards of Infinity as well is that it is not at its best multiplayer. It's a little arbitrary. 
You know, you have to decide who to attack, and generally you just spread the pain out equally. But there are mechanisms in Shards of Infinity where one player might be better defended than other players, and that can lead to degeneracy. It it kind of sort of did in our game. Basically, I was in a position where I would generate attack, and I knew for a fact that one of the other players had a defensive card. So I can either waste my attack on him, or I can just pick on somebody that doesn't have any defense. And then that leads to player elimination again, which is not cool. So I haven't tried it yet two-player. I'm looking forward to trying it two-player. If you played in the other Realms games, you've basically played Shards of Infinity. I still like seeing the minor tweaks that are made to the system, because they're all very fast-playing and fun. So nothing really surprising there. It's funny you brought up the mercenaries where I thought the cool mechanism that I liked was that other sort of income that you get where you can spend your odd number. What is, what's the currency? Do you know it offhand? What what are they called? Mastery. Mastery. You can build up mastery. So you, it only costs one of your currency and every turn you can slowly build up your mastery. And there are multiple cards that trigger off what your mastery level is at. And it's a way to win the game as well. Is it not? If you get 30... Effectively, there's a card that if you have 30 mastery when you play it, you generate an infinite number of combat. So yes, you win then. Exactly. And I thought I really like that part because it's, you know, this, you know, because you always have an odd thing and odd number of currency. So what, you know, when you have an odd one, you just toss it in there and you slowly, you know, build up this other currency and it, it improves your other cards. I thought that was very interesting. You're right. I didn't. I perhaps am not in a position to comment too much on it. I didn't emphasize that element of the game very much. I kind of left that as an afterthought. But you're right, it is somewhat novel and and interacts with some of the cards very nicely. Final game I'd like to talk about is a very pleasant surprise for me. Although really, in hindsight, I don't know why it was surprising. I pledged for the the first expansion for Grimslingers, which was called the Northern Territory. Uh, Back in my prior life as a uh, YouTube reviewer, I talked about a game called Grimslingers, and a number of people commented that it was the only game I ever sounded enthusiastic about. Even other games that I rated very highly and thought were very, very good, I didn't tend to enthuse about them, but Grimslingers was an exception because I felt that it was the odd time that everything came together. The gameplay, the story, the art line, the writing, everything seemed to be working really, really well, and I thought it was great, and I looked forward to seeing more. And uh, just as a side note, the Greenbrier Games Pledge Manager has got to be one of the worst ones I've ever encountered. I've pledged dozens and dozens of Kickstarters, but this is the only time when I missed that the campaign needed information from me, so my pledge got held up for a while as a result. Anyhow, so I finally got my extra Grimslinger stuff in, and oh my gosh, the first thing is... Steven Gibson, who's both the game designer and the artist for this game, I keep forgetting how incredibly jaw-droppingly gorgeous his stuff is. Yes, art is subjective, uh, but it's very much to my taste, and it's extremely well executed, even if it's not to yours. And I gotta say, if you want supernatural llamas wearing spectacles, this is definitely the game to go to. And the Northern Territory is just... blows the doors wide open in terms of the Grimslinger's formula. After playing the Seventh Continent, I thought I was done with sort of the choose-your-own-adventure-ish kind of narrative games. I found them dry and not particularly interesting, you know, time stories unlock again. But I had forgotten how much I love Grimslingers, and sitting down to play the Northern Territory with the the rules modifications and the substantive additions to the system and the new adventures, I just... It made me realize that I was wrong, and I do like narrative experiences in in board game form. They just have to be done properly. They have to communicate a world and characters that I care about, rather than just sort of generic, ooh, it's a weird continent where things are dangerous, don't eat the fruit. Like, that doesn't do much for me. But if you haven't taken a look at Grimslingers, it is an absolutely marvelous game. It's only uh, a small box game that can be played solo, or cooperative, or 1v1 competitive, or even multiplayer It's gone through a number of rules revisions because getting the rules super tight has not been Stephen Gibson's strong suit, but it's now basically its fourth fourth edition, and it's very, very, very solid. And I really can't recommend Grimslingers enough. It's given me tremendous joy, and I'm looking forward to delving into more of what the Northern Territory has to offer. All right, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So first bit of news, this is not of particular relevance to me, but it's causing a fair amount of spilkis online. Android Netrunner is dead. Fantasy Flight appears to have lost the license, and by virtue of that, the LCG, which had been going strong for a few years, is now no more. They're not going to be releasing any more packs after their final wave, which is which is incoming, and they're going to tear down the organized support. Yeah, the game is dead. Now, there's rumblings that the game is going to be resurrected by the original license holders, so there's going to be yet a third edition, effectively, of Netrunner. There hasn't been any official confirmation of that that I can see, but for now, Android Netrunner is no more. Well, it's going to be, it's by WizKids, right? So... And WizKids is is picking up everything that GW dropped. So taking yet another thing from FFG is probably right up their alley right now. Could be. I have Kung Fu Panda the board game. Odd, I know. 
But after watching the video, I, I'm mildly intrigued. It's because it's very much like Project Elite. It's a real-time, roll the dice quick. It's by the same designer that did Escape. So you're rolling dice quickly, killing bad guys, moving through the scenario, and you're under a timer, and you're trying to get as much done as possible. It looks kind of interesting, and I enjoyed the movies, and who knows? It's on Kickstarter. Check it out. So on the topic of Kickstarter, Monolith has released some information about how they're going to be releasing Claustrophobia 1643. And this is partially about claustrophobia, but partially also about how Monolith plans on doing business in the future. And I find this incredibly welcome news. Monolith released a public statement that said, all right, here's how we're going to be doing business from now on. We don't need Kickstarter to raise money anymore. We have operating capital. We can fund our next project. We don't need an interest-free loan from you, the consumers. And in fact, in some of their postings, they've kind of thrown a bit of shade into cool money or not uh, for pretending as though they need funding when really they don't. So what they say they're going to do from now on with respect to their Kickstarter projects is they're not going to launch the project until the the product is done and manufacturing has a solid timetable. And in fact, they are no for certain, for certain or as near as they can tell when it's going to be in their warehouses. And so this is going to be a pure pre-order system, pure and simple. They've said it explicitly. We're going to use it as a storefront. And so they plan on short campaigns with frequent reprints and no stretch goals, everything unlocked right from the start. In other words, very much like how they've done the reprint for Mythic Battles Pantheon. Here's what you're getting. No surprises because they say, look, stretch goals are just marketing nonsense. We don't need to bother with it. We know what we can afford. We know what we can do. And if our, we don't like enforced scarcity, so if there's demand for the product again, we'll just run another Kickstarter. We'll just run another week or two week Kickstarter and have it ready in, they say, in, you know, roughly six months-ish project horizon rather than, you know, raising a couple million bucks over a month-long Kickstarter with phony stretch goals that were already planned from the beginning and the project will show up in, you know, 12 to, to 18 months. Now, if this works... I think that's going to be great. Now, they say that they've cleared it with Kickstarter and that it's all hunky-dory with their policies because, of course, Kickstarter officially says it's not a store, but obviously it is in many contexts. Not always, but in many contexts. And I'm very enthusiastic about this. I really like how Monolith has been running their recent campaigns. It, it's a model of transparency. It's a model of good turnaround. And they really are trying to tailor it to the customer experience they want. And so they're sticking with Kickstarter because they say it's the best way to get free marketing and with connect with their consumer. They think that that's the best way to do it because they say that their their consumer isn't necessarily one who trawls on BoardGameGeek and isn't necessarily one who frequents a local game store, but is the kind of person that, that knows what's up on Kickstarter. So if that's true, again, more power to them, and this is a new way to do it. I don't object to Kickstarter, a lot of the Kickstarter practices that a lot of people do, but I don't like the sort of two-faced hypocrisy that surrounds a lot of it with respect to, oh, we need your support to make this happen and become a collaborator, blah, 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 blah. No, this is nonsense. The overwhelming majority of the time, it's a pre-order system with extra marketing weirdness slathered on top of it with artificial scarcity and weird exclusivity and, and so forth. So what they're doing is they're really sort of making everything they publish Kickstarter exclusive, but at the same time, they don't want it to be exclusive. They want to make sure that everyone that can get, get access to a copy can, and relatively quickly, so your money isn't tied up for upwards of a year. So I say more power to them. Good luck. Uh, they also parenthetically announced that uh, somebody helping on the a claustrophobia 1643 project is Laurent Pouchin. Laurent Pouchin is the designer of, I think, the criminally underrated miniatures game Akko, Era of the Asagiri, which had about three expansions and is a fabulous little miniatures game with uh, cardboard standees in a box. It was very affordable, very quick, very, very, very satisfying tactically. Basically, I think two people played it who spoke English. And I might be one of them. And so I'm very keen to see what he brings to his collaboration with Croc to work on Claustrophobia. So I say more power to Monolith, more power to Claustrophobia. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they come up with. Minor note, after next week, we are going to be in summer hours here at Swag. More details to follow. And now on to our feature game this week, which is Food Chain Magnate, which is a splotter game. Did you say splotter game? I did say splotter so Splatter is a publisher of very niche, low-luck, spatial efficiency resource management games with typically race elements. Their first big major release, and it was indeed very big, was called Roads and Boats, which was sort of 
the ultimate in supply chain management games. You know, you get your goose, you get your little plank of wood, you have your donkey drag some wood back to your sawmill, so you have planks of wood, you use your planks of wood to go build this other building, and now suddenly you've got some eggs from your geese, and then you turn that into this other thing, and then eventually you have stocks somewhere at the other end of this. It was this huge, huge thing. Very much not to my taste. I don't like that level of pure logistics, but it was very impressive in what it did. So there are other major releases which followed chronologically are games like Antiquity, Indonesia, The Great Zimbabwe, and their most recent big release has been in 2015, Food Chain Magnate. It is now in, I believe, its seventh printing, which is unheard of for a splatter design because as they are a very niche publisher, their board games tend to be very expensive. Whether or not it's worth it, we'll get into, but in terms of sheer sticker price for a game without tons of miniatures and lots of other things, it is more expensive than you'll pay for lots of other games of comparable size and component issue. Again, no judgment, I'm just making an assertion. And it has been extremely popular. It is probably their their first true breakout hit. All of their releases have had have found their audience, and people are very enthusiastic about them. Antiquity has come in and out of print every few years. Uh, Indonesia has been reprinted a couple times. Even The Great Zimbabwe, I think, has had one reprint. But none of them have reached the level of appeal and distribution that Food Chain Magnate has. So, Walker, why don't you tell us what we do in Food Chain Magnate? Well, Mark, it is the 1950s. And suburbia has just sprung up out of nowhere. And guess what? They want food. Do they want food, though? They want food. Or do they want what we tell them to want? Well, that's what, I'm, that's what I mean. They, <laughs> they want food because we say they want food. <laughs> and we've all built these restaurants in Suburbaville. And then mafia-like undercutting starts as we make food and try to undercut each other and try to sell our food at the cheapest price to make the most profit and then get out while the getting's good. Why don't we spend a little bit of time right off the top talking about how you introduced it, namely, it is the 1950s. And you have a particular take on the reception of this game that I think is, is that I agree with wholeheartedly, but you bring it up every time we play Food Chain Magnate. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your opinion of the visuals of the game? Oh, just be, just because I really like them. It's like art right from the 1950s. It's like uh, you see a lot in memes now or whatever. It's just the old, it'd be like the old PSAs, you know, type visuals where it's like, here is Jimmy and here is Jane. And so it's all black and white art and it's all from the era and it's in the color palette is fantastic. And it, for whatever reason, it, it got flack for being awful art or not up to date or it's like, look, I've. We, there's tons of games that have all these splashy, ridiculous artwork. This is very stylized, very in theme. It came with like a little menu. It was just an all-round fantastically published game, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. It's very visually striking. It doesn't look like everything else on the market. And very, very, very effectively done. I'm not a huge fan of the tiles, but I, I under, understand why they did the tiles the way they did. The tiles are a little less visually appealing, but they are a marvel of clarity and simplicity. It's very easy to look at the tiles and see exactly what's going on. The cards are gorgeous. I agree with you. The color palette is very evocative. The line drawings are very evocative. The, the, it's just, and it's all, all of their games, all of Splatter's games have been very visually striking and very visually distinct. Antiquity is probably my second favorite Splatter game, and it also is just absolutely gorgeous and does not look like every other game out there. And the fact that such a small company is able to put out such visually distinct titles, I, th I think, is a triumph. So yeah, I don't understand people that don't like the card art. I, you know, they, they just must must want another instantiation of a game in Terranoth or something. You know, the same art, same old art style that we see in every other game. So I'm just going to go briefly what you do, because a lot of people maybe not have played it. So so what you're doing first is you're going to you lay out this big uh, neighborhood, and there's going to be random buildings already printed on, on the cards, and the way you set out the tiles, the roads are going to sort of like block off parts of the map into like different neighborhoods, and some might even be their own little neighborhoods. So it's very interesting that way. Everyone places a restaurant on it, and then the game begins. You're, there's going to be a money part of it. Won't go into it. But essentially, you start with just your CEO, and then you're going to be start hiring people. It's got this massive, very interesting flowchart, and it all makes sense. So you start with a trainer or a hiring girl or a hiring person or... No, she's called a hiring girl. Hiring it's the, it's girl. the 1950s. They don't get 1950s. to have political opinions. Sorry, yes. So 
and your CEO has three has, has a little tree on him as well. So when you play him down, you can have three employees under him. So very first turn, you play him down, and his ability is he can hire someone. So you have this huge array of different employees you can have. You can hire a kid to go out and get you drinks for your restaurant or or make burgers or start at that point and then or hire your trainer so you can start training these people up. So then you lay out the cards and eventually you're going to have this huge sprawling pyramid scheme with with junior managers, VPs and uh, CEOs and all sorts of different, you know, hierarchy with all these different employees underneath them. And then you're going to trigger all these cards. You can even build houses. You can make tons of pizza, burgers, get lemonade, beer, cola, start marketing schemes, which is going to get demand for these particular products. And there's all sorts of different ones, Put uh, like mailbox schemes, you know, drop flyers, radio, billboards, however. They all have different, they're all unique in how they work. And then this all leads up to dinner time. And this is where the game shines because it doesn't matter who gave the demand to these houses or who started these marketing schemes. It's now down to who has what these people want and who can offer it to them at the cheapest price and and is closer to them. This all works out in this mass equation and whoever wins this particular bid-off system will supply them with food, they will get paid, and the game begins with whoever's getting the most money. So the, the competition begins that way. I kind of divide up what's going on in Food Trade Magnate into two separate buckets. There's managing your company, and then there's managing the map, everything that's going on there. And let's let's start with managing the company, because it is one of the more unique elements of Food Chain Magnate. Food Chain Magnate is, as I say, it's, you know, it's a, it's a no-luck efficiency resource management game with, with some race elements and some spatial stuff, very much like all the other Splatter games. But when I'm managing my little company of Food Chain Magnate, it's not really a simulation of running a, running a company, but I really do get this, get this sense of starting with relatively nothing and building up all these people that I have to decide how to deploy them. And there are all these great little delicious trade-offs about who to train up because as you train them, suddenly you have to start paying them salary, which can be very expensive, and they also can't work for you the turn that they've been, that they've training. So you start looking at this person, this fresh-faced kid who's a management trainee, and saying, "I need you this turn, but next turn you can be so much better if I set you aside." And the, so the tension starts really right away, even with the first decision of who to hire first which is kind of a bit of the double-edged sword because I, I, I'd like to introduce this idea early on because it's going to be recurring. One of the biggest elements of games like this, and it's by no means unique to Food Chain Magnet, it's very endemic to Splatter games and games like it, which is that early misplays can haunt you forever. There are standard openings, and if you're the kind of person who likes that, who likes to read about standard openings and how they, how they work in different ways, that's great. And if you're in a in the kind of group where if somebody makes an initial hire, like there are lots of cards that are absolutely great and I love and rely on tremendously, like waitresses. Hiring a waitress in the first turn, bad mistake. I would go so far as to say that if you hire a waitress in your first turn, all other things being equal, you've already lost the game. And so hopefully you're in the kind of group that's willing to say, eh, you might want to consider one of these other options because it's not a super long game, but in Food Chain Magnate, when you're losing, you know it. Because all the transactions are basically zero-sum. There's no economic cooperation here. It's all parasitic and brutally competitive. So if you get knocked out, if you get your, if you make terrible decisions in the first, first rounds, you're going to have a tough road ahead of you. Now, these decisions aren't the normal bad decisions that are going to put you a turn behind. Like where I you know, could have done things more effectively. They've introduced a system in this game called Milestones. And if you do not get on the bandwagon at the beginning of the game, guess what? You really are out of the game. Because once these milestones are taken, whoever qualifies for them that turn gets these special abilities. And then the milestone's turned over. Nobody else can get that milestone. And there are, there are over, there are dozens of them. And they are huge benefits to you throughout the game. So... That leads into one of my bad points, I feel, which all I've written down here is that are you either going to lead or are you going to follow? So are you going to lead the game and push towards certain milestones 
and make everyone else follow you because if they don't do the same thing you're doing, then they're going to miss out on that milestone. And I, and I really enjoy that part of the game. I know while I'm playing it, it sounds as though I hate it, but <laughs> it, it, I really like how you could either, like I said, you could drive the game, push people into a corner. You can see that, you know, by doing this, they're, you're really going to, you know, sort of slow them down because they're, they don't want to do a particular thing this turn, but it's not really harming you. You can just sort of do it as an off thing. And now they all have to, you know, sort of tilt the balance back because if they don't do it now, it's going to be gone. There's very much an early arms race for those for some of the early milestones. A lot of those milestones, they go out early, and as you say, they never come back. And so you really have to be conscious of where you're going to get your early ones. And that has to drive your first hiring decision. With your first hiring decision and with your hiring decision in the second and third rounds, you have to know, all right, here are the ones that I can lock down. And you have to look at what other people are hiring and figure, okay, I have enough time so that I can build up a little thing. Because a lot of what's going on in Food Chain Magnet is precisely about timing. Because you're always going to be able to make more money if you just have a couple more rounds to lay out the perfect setup. Your corporate structure is just perfect for that round. You've, everyone's been trained and put in the right positions. You've laid out the right marketing campaigns and suddenly the, the rubes out in the, the suburbs want exactly what you have to sell them and they're willing to pay for it. And you can offer it and your, opponent, your competitors can't and everything's going to go perfectly. And it never works that way. You're never, except for some of those great glorious turns where you outmaneuver people. Usually it's about, well, eh, in order to get the sale, I have to make some compromises and not quite do things the way I want to do things. I need to be able to cut this corner in order to get this milestone because someone else is going to get it up from under me first. And while it is very much the case that, just, just to stress, everyone is going to have their own little specialist niche because not everyone's going to get all the milestones. You have to make these trade-offs. And so one person's going to be really good at marketing and is going to have tremendous savings from their salaries. And another person's going to be super good at training people and sell things at a very, very high premium or what have you. So it's not that everyone's going to end up with the same cluster of abilities. People are going to specialize in different things, but you have to know where those milestones are coming from or you're going to be in serious trouble. It is very novel, and it drives a lot of the early games, and it can serve as a guidepost for what you're doing. But if you wander off that sort of path, yes, it can be very, very hard to recover later on. All right, let me just cover quickly how the game ends. At the beginning of the game, you have these three cards. Everyone picks one. It either has one, two, or three hundred. So the game starts with a certain amount of money in the bank. And when that runs out, everyone flips over the card they picked. And it'll also tell you whether or not your CEO has the same amount of leadership, I guess, that he did before. And then whatever those cards add up to is going to form the second bank. And when that runs out, the game will be over. Since we're talking about money in the bank and since we're talking about milestones, let's talk briefly about a very, very specific point that I know you have some problems with, Walker, and that is the CFO. There's one role, there's one card, one employee that you can train up to, who's very, very difficult to train up to. He's, he's basically the head of, uh, at the end of a, of a specialization tree. Or if you're the first to get 100 bucks, or if you're one of the people to crack 100 bucks at the same time as everybody else, you get a free CFO. Basically, your, your CEO also works as a CFO. And the function of this is whenever this person is in your structure, you get a 50% bonus to all your income that turn. I have heard you inveigh in very, very strong terms against the presence of this milestone and of this role. Why don't you elaborate a little bit more oh, on that? Oh, it just like feeds into these other games. I think I can't think of too many off the top of my head. In fact, I can only think of one because it always stands out, and that's Dungeon Lords. When you go through all the different victory conditions of Dungeon Lords, it's like, oh, did you score this victory condition? Well, then you're the master of that victory condition. You get more victory points. And, oh, did you hit that many victory points? Well, here's five more victory points. And I just, I hate that mechanism where, hey, you're winning, win more. So I know there's going to be a counterpoint, but in this game, it's like, oh, you're the first to 100. You're doing great. Guess what? Now you're going to be making 50% more money on top of what already you're making. I just, I... I just, I really enjoy just playing this game. And I feel as though that card really brings out a competitive nature to the game that I don't like. Hmm. Well, I have two things to say in response. I'm not a huge defender of it. I have faith in Jérôme Domain and uh, Joris Versinga, who are the people behind Splatter and have done all the Splatter games. But number one, worst case scenario, let's assume that the CFO just has this degenerate effect on a game of Food Chain Magnet that you say. Then all that it does is it brings the game to a speedier conclusion by virtue of the fact that somebody's already winning. That's the worst case scenario, right? True. No, all of the points you make are fantastic. 
according to this card, but it still no, no, does you, not... need, you don't you don't get to say that my points are good before I make them. Walk. Sorry, go ahead, make your second point. <laughs> my second point is, as I've said, if you wait, if you have the freedom of time, if you have don't care about early competition, if you you know you get your early milestones, right? That's that's turns you know three to five maybe. And then you say, okay, screw it. I'm not going to bother paying attention to anything. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to train everybody so that I can make everything perfect. And I'm going to sell this burger for $75,000. And I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. This can be done. You can get tremendous value for money if you're willing to just wait off the sidelines and, and just ignore the early map. The first to 100 milestone is, is meant to be a way to prevent that. It's to give people, admittedly, like me, who like to nickel and dime their way to victory quickly, you know, go for the fast cash and turn order, a way to compete against those individuals who are going to set up the game-crushing, game-ending combo. True, I just think that that's what I mean. In, in our group, I don't think that card will work because I don't think there's anyone that would do that kind of thing. I think they would be much like me, much like I, and just enjoy playing, setting up your restaurant, delivering food, and you know, just nickel and diming each other. You know, fighting over that one house to get lemonade type thing. Fair enough. So let me sum up why I don't think that the early misplay problem is as big a problem in this game as it is for for lots of other splatter games, and this is why. Food Chain Magnet is my favorite splatter game by a a reasonable margin. And that is, if you are able to have a reasonably good sense of how the game is going, if you have a turn where you don't make any money, for example, say it's the mid-game or even near the end game, and you have a turn where you're just not able to make any money, it doesn't take much presence of mind to realize that you need to retool. And then the question is, can you retool? Can you pivot? In many heavier, medium-heavy or heavier Euro games, you can't really turn on a dime, you can't really retool. But in Food Chain Magnet, precisely because of your ability to make these kinds of decisions, because of your ability to manipulate demand on the board, and because of all these considerations, if you have the presence of mind, and if you are able to step out of the game and say, okay, I'm going to spend a couple rounds just rebuilding. That's what I'm going to do. Everyone else is going to do their thing. They're going to be able to to, to make their sales. But what I'm going to do is I need to set up the next stage of the game where I'm going to undercut these, these losers. And I've seen it happen, and it's glorious. Because, again, I have a very particular play style. I nickel and dime. I just go out go for the cheap buck. And then I think I'm doing great. I think I'm kicking someone's teeth in because I'm selling my two burgers around. And I'm getting income, and they're getting nothing. And then suddenly, three rounds later, they start whipping out all these employees that they've been quietly training up while being fallow. And suddenly, they're earning so much money that, that it basically forces the end of the game in a couple rounds. And it's great that the game allows you to do this. We've talked about you know, economic sandboxy games before. And despite the fact that the rule set for Food Chain Magnate is pretty darn slim, and it's basically just a question of, you know, these people want this food, give it to them at the cheapest possible price. There's a lot of ways to do that. And that is one of the reasons why I keep coming back to Food Chain Magnate. That ability to pivot, that ability to pull yourself out from no income to suddenly game-crushing dollars, even if you don't win, it's still very satisfying to be able to reconfigure. And the reverse is also true. When you see people winning and you have a substantial lead, there's a way to throw in a wrench and slow them down as well. I really love that. It's happened a couple times where it's like, oh, they're do- they, over on the other side of the board, they have this great beer and pizza thing going on, and I can't get in there, I can't do anything about it, but I'm just going to you know, set up a radio campaign in the middle of the city saying, hey, everyone wants lemonade, right? And suddenly this radio signal goes out, now suddenly everyone in, in the city wants lemonade. They can't get lemonade, so therefore... They can't sell anything to these houses, and so they're stopped. And my little, you know, burger and cola industry over on this side of the map is just still chugging along at a slow little pace. Or, or even subtle timing concerns. One of my favorite ways to kneecap somebody, and it's glorious if you can pull it off, is some houses pay double. Some houses are rich, they'll pay double for, for whatever it is that they're buying. If you can set it up so that the cheap houses come and eat at your competitor's restaurant, and then they don't have any food left, so then all the rich people come to your restaurant... That is even before you consider the ultimate grandmaster move, which I've only I've never been able to pull off, but I've seen it pulled off, and it's glorious. Normally, you want to undercut your competition, but if you're able to manage things just right, if you if your understanding of the supply lines is such, and your understanding of the demands are such that in food chain magnet you can actually jack up your prices, you can get a luxuries manager out there and say, no, 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 I'm not competing with you anymore. I'm selling my goods for double, but I know they're going to sell because I understand the board better than you do. It's so beautiful. And that just leads into another point that I have here. It's a different game every time. You can do different strategies. Every time you come to Food Chain Magnet, you can go with a totally different gameplay. And that's another reason why it's real. The flow, the flow is real. 
much like John Company, once you see that first turn, like it's huge, I shouldn't say it's huge front end, because like you said, the rule book's kind of light, but there is a lot going on, and the nuances are there, but as soon as you see a full turn in play and understand how the demand plays off the supply, like you just said, it all just makes sense, you know what I mean? There's no, you know, hidden, weird mechanisms, there's no anything, it all just sort of flows together and makes sense. I think actually John Company and Food Chain Magnet are in many ways fascinating pairs because you're right they both have a very very solid game flow that kind of propels the game forward and once you understand how that works then a lot of the details take care of themselves but what's fascinatingly different for me about a game like john company is a lot of the consequences the ripple effects some of the actions are very very interesting to see happen but a lot of them are carried through by the game systems themselves in food chain magnate there are tons of ripple effects of what happens but everything that happens in the game of food chain magnate is as a result of someone's conscious decision the game does nothing there's no indians rising up to overthrow you the people in the suburbs never wake up one day and say hey this cola is bad for me no 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 they'll keep drinking it so long as you keep telling them to drink it no crazy elephants no crazy elephants and everything is purely a function of what someone has decided to do and maybe it was a mistake Maybe they shouldn't have done it. And sometimes that's actually to the game's detriment thematically because I I love the look of the game. I love it. It really does communicate a certain era, a certain bygone era that I'm very glad is bygone. I wasn't there for the 50s, but good Lord, it seemed terrible if you weren't a white dude and pretty bad even if you were in many instances. But, you know, there's some thematic weirdnesses. Like, for example, nobody will buy anything unless you tell them to buy something. So first you have to go market, but you don't market for your products. You just market for product in general. So there's some billboard out there that just says, pizza is great. Doesn't matter whose pizza it is. You want pizza. And then the weird thing that always gets me, and this is actually a minor barrier to helping people play the game, if somebody wants pizza and a beer, they're not going to go eat at your restaurant unless you have both a pizza and a beer. Fine, that makes sense. If they want pizza on Tuesday and nobody sells them a pizza on Tuesday, but they keep getting advertised that they want pizza, on Wednesday they want two pizzas. And if you only have one pizza for them, they're not going to eat at your restaurant. They're sitting there and saying, no, 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 we're too hungry to take your one pizza. We're going to wait until you have more. And then on Thursday they want three pizzas. Very particular customers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very particular. So the theme only kind of works sometimes but still I think in terms of overall flavor for what is basically a deterministic economic management game it is certainly more thematic and flavorful than most sure like the the structure of your employees and the supply and demand is spot on but then like you said when you actually have the consumption part is is a bit wonky but other but wonky thematically definitely not wonky gameplay wise yes yes absolutely The only other minor negative I have, other than its cost, which I mentioned earlier, because it is a very expensive game, I don't regret having got it, but I can definitely see if if you're on a little bit more of a budget that maybe you might want to go for some of these slightly less good economic management games that cost a third as much, is that it is a table monster. It will consume your entire table because you need to lay out all the different employee types, of which there are many. Each of them is the stack of cards. You need to lay out all the milestone types, of which there are many, and each of them is the stack of cards. There are player aids on, uh, on BoardGameGeek that obviate the need for all the milestone cards. I recommend them highly. There's a product on the BoardGameGeek store, which as of this recording is still in stock, whereby you can turn the, the, the box top into a, a storage for all the employee cards and as a dry erase board for all the milestones. That significantly cuts down on the table requirements. Uh, but if you're lacking either of those, then it, you know, many people just flatly won't have a table big enough. You're going to have to have like a sideboard or a coffee table off to the side where all the employee cards are t- are, or milestones are, are, are taken up. So that can be a bit of an issue because you do need to be able to access all these cards pretty much all the time. Yeah, that's the only bad point I had left that we had covered is the footprint that this, the table footprint that this game covers. And I can't really much add because even after Mark said all the cards are laid out and we still I mean he didn't even say the fact that now there's the whole map as well plus all the pizzas and colas and lemonades and and burgers and lots of pieces to sort of summarize all splatter games strike me as very very similar in lots of ways but they all feel so very different they're all extremely deterministic race-like economic management games but they all have this radically different theme and feel and look it's one of the reasons why they're consistently one of the more interesting publishers in the industry, despite being so small and so niche. It's just all their output is just really striking and interesting, even when I don't particularly like it. And as far as very, very spatially reliant games like this, they, they almost feel a little bit like pick up and deliver games because of how much they care about geography and placement. 
And I do not like pick up and deliver games. I tend to not enjoy those spatial elements. But for some reason, the way Splatter does it always grabs me. Even the ones I don't like. like I, I didn't particularly enjoy Indonesia. Great game, not for me. Same thing with uh, Great Zimbabwe. Great game, not for me. But when, everything they do is just really interesting. And I've never regretted my time with a, a, a Splatter product. So we both highly recommend Food Chain Magnate. Great experience. And I really feel as though it, it will play differently with the number of players that you'd play with as well. Uh, I don't think it would be as fun with two players, but three, four, or five, I really think the fact that the way the map changes its size, that you can actually have little micro uh, fights going on on the map between all the different elements. So I, I, I really want to try it with a full five. It would be ridiculously long, but I think it would lead to really interesting circumstances. And like Mark said, uh, try it whenever you can. That is Food Chain Magnate. So the topic for this week is going to be board game storage or uh, the burden of curation. And given that I am a self-indulgent sort of individual, allow me to start with a, a little bit of my own personal story here. I used to, I still do actually derive tremendous enjoyment from curating the bits of culture that I care a lot about. And I used to have far more collections than I do now. I still have, of course, the collection of books that I've, you know, brought from move to move to move, but... Fewer and fewer books are the kind of thing we keep in print anymore. And so to a certain extent, although there are many, many books that I will never, ever part with, you know, the books that I, I really fell in love with in, in university and undergrad, you know, all the all the books of philosophy and thought that really shaped the, the, the person that I am now. I mean, Archie and the gang, Jughead, Veronica and Betty, gotcha. Jughead is my lord and personal savior. Gotcha. But I used to curate lots of more things than I, I do now. I used to curate video games, for example. I used to keep them around. But then you have to keep the systems around, and that started to become a little bit of a burden at that point. So I once I finally cut the metaphorical cord and got rid of all of those, that's great. I still curate movies and TV series. I'm not entirely sure why. It's an expensive... Um, it's an expensive habit, but I still derive a great deal of pleasure knowing that all my favorite works of, of AV media I have access to at any given time, aside from the vicissitudes of Netflix or, or what have you, and at least it occupies less space. Which brings us to board games, which are huge. <laughs> They're big. They're really big. And the bigness of them, of course, is, was of particular relevance to me because, you know, not to get into too, much, too many details, very recently I completed a move. And sure enough, you know, there's nothing like having to pack and then unpack all your earthly belongings to make you really reevaluate what on earth you're doing with your life. And it is certainly the case that more than once when accumulating all my earthly possessions that have now become a tether to drag me down like some sort of albatross, I did consider setting them all on fire. But unpacking my board game collection was a tremendous joy. It, it immediately made everything worthwhile. Just the process of going through and being able to appreciate the physicality of all these items brought me tremendous pleasure. I don't know if you have the same attitudes as a collector. I know, I know you don't keep lots of collections around anymore. You two have undergone a series of moves, and that has caused you to have to, to, to pare down. But your games are still with you, so clearly you've made some of the same decisions I have. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's, a, it's a nice feeling. Bringing them into your new home, it really makes it feel like it's now your home and it's nice you know it you can see it when people come over to the house they just gravitate down towards the shelving you know what i mean they all stand around the shelves looking you know what i mean it's it's just it brings you know knowing that they're there that's because your friends don't like to make eye contact walker coming home from work i'm just gonna ignore you i'm gonna keep going coming home from work knowing that they're there you need a dog man it's it is a great feeling <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the, the specific burdens that you have to undergo when maintaining a collection. Because this is true for what it's worth, regardless of the size of your collection. It doesn't take many games before this starts to become a pressing problem. Like, you can manage five-ish games and not really have to worry about it too much. You can, you can stash those on a bookshelf just in amongst your books or whatever, or amongst your dishes in some sort of sideboard in a dining room. That's all fine. The moment you start getting past that, and I think it's safe to say that many people listening to this podcast are well past that number, you have to start making some decisions. Does that sound fair? It does. So most of us live in the thrall of the terrifying God King Kallax. Uh, and indeed, as we as we record this, we are uh, within literal arm's reach of Walker's Kallaxes who, who stand sentinel over us all. 
And it does seem to be, I'm talking, of course, about the iconic Ikea cubes, the sort of 4x4 or 5x5 cubes that Ikea sells. Yeah, watch any board game reviewer video, and I'm sure you'll see a stack behind him. Absolutely. And it does seem... Actually, I don't think you're allowed to do board game reviews unless you have a Calyx behind you. I think... That's why I got uh, ejected from YouTube. Oh, okay. I was, That's why I was wondering. I the... recorded in front of a bookshelf with uh, books and toys, and I was told that this was exactly. not okay. That's, well, there you go. But let's be frank. There are some problems with the Calyx. This is this is one of the things that, before I start talking about what I'm doing, there, there are some issues with the Calyx. And you, you're surely aware of what I'm talking about, right? Mm, yeah, well, not really. I, I think they're great because normal bookshelves have a... I'm going to go through my points. I'm just going to you know ignore what you have to say. Oh, wow. Um... They have no backs on them. That's why there's well, one of the good points about them is that when you have longer games, if you just, when you set them up, you bring them about four inches off the wall, then you can push these bigger games through them and still line them up all nice, perfectly straight. Also, they it looks wonderful. It's going to be the big topic of this particular subject is going, are you going to store your games vertically or horizontally? That's the big issue with Calyx. You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to lay them up? <laughs> are you going to let all your components, you know, sink down to the bottom of the box? Or are you going to lie them all flat and have to slide your boxes out whenever you need them? It is indeed a great choice. I noticed that you have opted very firmly for the vertical storage arrangement. I think it's just much easier to put them away and, and you know, choose games that you want to play without having to worry about, you know, you know, sliding them out underneath or, you know, yanking them quickly. Or I just like it better. It's true, but you do have to worry about component drop. It's for sure, and and I, I just store them in a way that I know it's not going to cause a problem. Sure. So the problem that I was alluding to, which you just breezed past in your incredible eulogy of, of all things Calyx, is some games do not fit in the Calyx, period. They just don't fit in them at all. It's not a question of length, although there are some games that are too long for, for a good Calyx, even though, as you say, if you put it about four inches off the wall, that, that's on. some are just too wide. And then you're kind of boned because you have a couple of options then, none of which are particularly aesthetically pleasing. That's not so bad. Like not most Calyx don't go right to your ceiling. So any of your bigger games you can store on the top. I know, but that's kind of ugly, first of all. Uh, so I have a couple that just don't fit on Calyx's period. Galaxy Striker Anniversary Edition is too wide. It will not fit in the, the squares. Too Many Bones is too wide. There are a number of games that will fit but really shouldn't. Things like Thulu Wars and, and issues like that. You know, very, very large boxes. And I... You know, honestly, if you're going to go to the problem of organizing things properly and putting them in the shelves, then having just this pile of stuff on top. And I noticed that your pile of stuff on top, you can't store it vertically. You have to you have to stack it horizontally. And that's not your preference. So you've had to make compromises by virtue of your Calyx. Well, those particular games are so big and the components in them are so heavy that I'd probably want to store them that way anyway. So we're talking, specifically the ones we're talking about are the old uh, Fantasy Flight coffin boxes, coffin boxes. Descent 1st Edition, Rune Wars 1st Edition, World of Warcraft, Starcraft, stuff like that. Tide of Iron, like I think it itself weighs about 230 pounds, so I wouldn't want, I think it just disintegrate the box if it's, you try it's one to of those, store it vertically. It, it's one of those games where the title describes the process of what happens when you try to open the box. It <laughs> exactly. just comes open and there's this tide of stuff that comes over you. That's as heavy as iron. And the Gloomhaven box is great. If it was just a bit bigger, it could just slide perfectly into the Calyx Square. There's it's something, almost that big. Well, Cthulhu Wars works that way, and I find it desperately aesthetically un, unsatisfying. Something about there just being one game in a Calyx square just seems seems strange. Or the Scythe, the Scythe collector's box. It, it almost fits perfectly into the square by itself as well. Yeah. So I think it's relatively clear that I had my misgivings. I used to live a Calyx lifestyle. One of the virtues uh, that I have now of having abandoned the Calyx lifestyle is I'm able to keep all of my games together in the same place. I never used to be able to do this. I used to have a Calyx with some of my games and then somewhere in a closet and then some might have been storage in the basement and, and, and stuff like that. But now uh, I'm in a position where I just have wire utility shelving, which is hideous, but very functional, and everything will fit on wire utility shelving. There's nothing that won't fit there. And yes, I do stack my games vertically partially as a result because otherwise you're going to you know need too many shelves in order to stack everything horizontally. But we're not talking about six, seven games in a pile. We're talking about three or four usually. And it's very, very easy to extract what I need. At most, you have to just do a simple two-step operation. Step one, take the two games Already on top and put it somewhere else. Step two, retrieve the game you want, and Ugh, you're done. And the, then you don't have to worry about all the components sliding down. I, I got to say, the other benefit of not having a Calyx lifestyle is Calyxes are not very good at storing small games. 
I notice that what you have is these plastic bins that slide into the calyx, and all your small games are just tossed in there pell mell. But this this relates to one of the this relates to one of the big issues, and this is something that I've I've had to deal with in many different ways at various stages of my collection. If a game isn't immediately visible, most of the time it's not going to get played. This is a hundred percent true. Which is a shame. It's really a shame. I, you know, and I make frequent use of a lot of the Board Game Geek tools. Like, I use the Want to Play tag and, and stuff like that. But even then, if it's in a bin somewhere, unless it's in constant, constant rotation, like a couple of games that I know that you have in a bin are, for example, Cockroach Poker and Skull. And we play those all the time as, as, as a, 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 an ender to the night. And so we know it's there and, and, and we know it's in there. But you've got like two dozen other games in those bins. I don't know what those are. Do you know what those are? Maybe. Exactly. <laughs> I used to be in a position where I had to keep some of my games in storage, and they were readily accessible. It wasn't going to take me very long to get them, and I don't mean storage in the sense of one of those grim self-storage places. I just mean in bins in the basement. But they just didn't get played, period. Because if you don't remember it, if your eye isn't going to pass over it, then it's not going to be foremost in your mind. You're not going to play it. And that's a sh- that, that's such a shame. And I was locked for a very long time. And this is more about me than, 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 than the hobby itself. But I think some other people can empathize. I was locked in this position where I'd, I'd have a game like Fealty, for example. Fealty is the first published design by Eric Royce, who designed Spirit Island. It's a great game. I like it. It's quick. It's accessible. It's, it's, it's great. It was published a reasonably long time ago and it's relatively obscure so it's not going to be something that enters rotation by itself I'm not going to get rid of it it was published by a friend of mine and I enjoy it and I have very fond memories of it and I want to play it again but it's not going to be it's not going to make the very top tier of constant rotation because I'm just a little too omnivorous of a game collector and so it would end up in a bin which means I would never get to play it and I can't get rid of it in other words a literal millstone like I'm just not going to well not a literal millstone but <laughs> a, a direct figurative millstone of something that I can never get rid of, but I'm not going to use. And that's a shame. And I'm so happy. I'm thrilled that I'm not living that existence anymore. And it, in part, honestly, it's because I've abandoned the lifestyle of the Calyx. The Calyx is a shackle walker. It is the Procrustean bed into which games have to fit. Your jealousy is palatable, <laughs> it's making me drool. Yeah, at, at least you you at least know that you got the word wrong, so you're able to to adapt the joke to make sure that you use the right word. Good job. I I my sincere appreciation for that. No, I'm not. I don't have a beef with the Calyx. I don't object to the Calyx. It works very well for some people. It's just I think it's a shame that in this case form begets the function, and some games are just by virtue of the fact that they don't fit in Calyxes, see less play. There's a direct there's a r- direct relationship. It's true, but some advantages to it are the fact that you, whenever you go to get it, they're always going to be the same size. They're almost always purchasable. You mean they're always available? Yes. They're always going to take up the exact same size, exact same measurements. Well, for for now, calyxes used to be bigger. The cubes used to be different. Within ten years ago, the cubes were of a, a different set of dimensions, and then they became smaller. I'm serious. The cubes have not always been the same. Their iconic Billy bookshelves, for example, have changed over the years. The calyxes might change again, and then what happens? Who knows? Yeah, it's a great upheaval. Okay, so let's let's stop slagging on, on yes, calyxes for a bit. Let me, let me ask you a question. How do you deal with what I would call games that are collections in and of themselves? I'm thinking of things like Heroescape, of Cthulhu Wars, of games that where you cannot fit them back into a single box. They're necessarily going to sprawl over many boxes. I'm not even talking about things like, I notice you've got your uh, World of Smog, Rise of Moloch. You basically condensed it down into a couple boxes. Yes, I am very much the mindset, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, is that games must fit into one box. I do not keep expansion boxes. Everything must be forced into the main box. But what or, if it can't? Or drastic measures must be taken. Right, so you, you don't play, um, other than Shadespire, which isn't really much of a tabletop minis games, you don't really play tabletop minis games anymore. That's but, but back in the day when you did... And because I still maintain, you know, collections of infinity miniatures, I have to maintain the group's Kingdom Death Monster collection because that's my responsibility. I have a big Thulu Wars collection that's going to get bigger. I have a massive Heroescape collection, all these things. Uh, That is the one area in which it's a little like I still have them on utility shelving. The exception of Heroescape, it's in a big bin in the middle of my basement and it's great. But... It, it I never really know what to do with them in terms of display and management and stuff like that. It's the sort of uh, uh, sort of outlier in my general policies. And I was wondering if you had any words of wisdom for me. No, I'm afraid not. Mm. I, too, have just a giant Heroscape bin. And all my miniatures are just 
just pawn them off at your friend's basements. When your friend has a basement, you just ask him to store all, all your stuff there. Like I have my my sub board game collection at our friend JD's place, and then I have all my miniature stuff at my daughter's place. You see, you get them to keep all that stuff that you don't want anymore, but just cannot, you know, in your right mind, get rid of. It is by no means unique to board games, but that status, you can't get rid of it. You're never going to use it. It just, it just rankles me, especially when I know that you could sell it for a large quantity of money. <laughs> it's true. There is one exception, though, to the, you know, ditch the insert, force everything in the one box uh, thing. And it, it, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a salient one. We talked, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about claustrophobia. And scenario-based games where the expansions introduce new stuff that is just used for the uh, scenarios, those expansion boxes I keep because that's just a good way to separate out the stuff that's just for expansion content. Otherwise, yes, I'm very much like you. I ditch the insert, except in very rare cases where it's a custom insert that I think is very pretty. If it's functional enough, I'll keep it. But otherwise, everything gets forced into one box, even if I have to exert considerable influence to do it. Uh, I just want to make a note. When I was... You know, looking stuff up for this, there's a fantastic little thing you can buy for your closet, like a closet organizer. You like you hang it up, has a hook on it, and it has all these shelves. And I thought it was it was great for these families who have like family game night or whatever. It's like it's right in the shelf, it's right there. They pull it out, have all your games right, you know, right by the kitchen table. I thought it was a fantastic idea. Who are these people that have closets big enough for 300 games? Well, well you. You only buy one. You wouldn't like put wait all, what? You, you wouldn't put your entire gaming collection there. I'm confused. I'm sorry. Some some people, Mark, only have maybe ten to five games. Odd, I know. People to be pitied? I, it, they really are. Well, that's going to close us out for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we possibly can. We've been getting a lot of good recommendations lately. One of the reasons why we did Food Chain Magnate this week actually was as a result of a viewer recommendation, so thanks very much for that. We continue to read your feedback. We're going to be planning out the content for the next few months as things go on, and you've been of great, great help, so we do appreciate your getting back to us when we asked. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. Bye. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>